Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Carlos Hawthorne and I'm a staff writer, a resident advisor. Our guest this week is Nicole Mudaba. When it comes to dance music, Nigerian-born DJ and producer Nicole Mudaba has been around the block. Today she's one of Techno's top performers, known, amongst other things, for her work alongside Carl Cox, her collaboration with Skunk and Nancy's Skin as Breed, and her love of technology. But before she came good as an artist, she was a promoter, helping organise some of the Middle East's first electronic events in post-war Beirut and running successful parties at London's now-defunct Turnmills. She unpacked all this and more on a recent visit to our London office. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. An exchange with Nicole Mudaba, up next. just come back from Ibiza playing your last show there I mean how was how was the island the summer for you this season was really the best season I've had over there really and I've been uh, playing mainly the Carl Cox nights uh, and for the past two years was doing music on as well but this year the game changed a little bit so um, I joined the Circo Loco family on the Mondays at DC 10 in Ibiza and also did the one with the Jamie Jones Paradise and obviously the Carl Cox I did a couple of shows and it was just amazing I can feel the response uh, has gone up a notch for me anyway amazing I mean is it important for you to play across the island it is but uh, you know DC 10 are a little bit funny they don't like you to play anywhere else um, but uh, my relationship with with Carl obviously is a bit different and, and that's why they accepted uh, my normal gigs there but apart from that yeah they don't like you to play anywhere else so I was sort of exclusive Did it take a while to warm up to the Circo Loco thing or were you kind of straight in there Yeah straight in there for sure uh, because I did a few shows last year as well as New Year's Day early on this year and so I know the vibe and obviously before playing I used to go and hang and uh it is one of my fa- it is my favorite club without a doubt. I mean, one of the standout shows from the summer was um, your back to back with Skin at Space. Yeah. I mean, tell me a little bit about that that performance. That just came uh, really late in the game. We were supposed to do the launch party at uh, Beach House, which is another venue on the island, and so I had a date at Space on the terrace uh, that day. And obviously, Carl and his management decided to give me a three-hour slot during that time to do uh, the launch with Skin. And it was uh, our first back-to-back ever. She's never done that before. It was incredible. We just did what we normally do, just play records. And it gelled, and it was quite electrifying. For those that don't know, you've been working closely with Skin, who obviously used to be the lead singer of Skunk and Nancy, um, on this new project, Breed. Uh, did you get to try out those records when you were playing? Oh, yeah, I've been, I've been playing them for a while. I have, yeah. 
normally either you know at the beginning of my sets or the last record of my sets and it worked and and obviously you know every single dj has been playing them from Carl Cox to Chris Liebing to Adam Bayer, uh, Jamie Jones. So it's between house and techno. All the DJs have been playing it. It's got full vocals in them and um, it's a hit and miss. A lot of DJs are scared to play vocals. So it took me a while to uh, to nail it and, and not scare the DJs without sounding cheesy, having all the vocals in. I had to do her justice. I I couldn't just take one sentence out of her vocals that she's given me and and you know, I might as well just get on the mic and do it myself if it was just a few words. So what was most challenging about the project? You know, getting the balance between the full vocals on a house and techno record. That really did my head in for a while. It took me about 6 months to nail the construction of of the music and making it work, really. Do her justice because she's given me amazing vocals and lyrics and and I wanted to show them, but uh, without uh, going into crossover territories or or commercial territories, just keeping my sound and not compromising too much. Did that give you a taste for similar projects in the future, experimenting, pushing the boat out? For sure, for sure. Uh, I'm definitely into doing more. It's very challenging. And uh, working with an established artist like her, you know, she's like an iconic figure in the rock world. And the marriage between rock and techno uh, worked, I think. And uh, we have plans to do more, for sure. Were you guys in the studio together or was it kind of... Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we were together. She came down and she wrote the lyrics there and then in front of me and and went into the the booth and sang the vocals. <laughs> it was quite overwhelming at the beginning, actually. It was, uh, it was uh, a learning experience as well, you know. She taught me a lot about verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and all these things that I wasn't aware of. And now uh, I have a, a clear indication of how to construct a full vocal track. Let's take it back. You were born in Nigeria. You spent time in Lebanon. You now live in London. When someone asks you where you're from, what do you say? Then I know. I say I'm a, I'm a mixed salad. <laughs> what do I say? It's a good question. The people don't, uh, they like a clear answer and I don't have a clear answer. I was born in Africa. I lived, uh, originally I'm Lebanese and now I'm English. London is my home. So I'm a, I'm a bit of everything. A child of the universe. How many years did you spend in Africa? Till I was uh, from zero to 13. I was there. And did music play a big part of your life oh, growing yeah. up? I mean, that, that's what they do all day over there. Music blaring on the streets, at home, everywhere I go. They, the Nigerians love life and they dance all day. <laughs> so I was subjected to a lot of Afrobeat music and a lot of Nigerian music which is very tribal percussive a lot of the fella kuti tony andrews and all these guys were part of my life so the kind of um basics of dance music of music for dancing they were kind of always uh, around you growing up and that kind of that idea was always in your head when i was growing up i wasn't part of that at all it was uh, you know mainly pop soul funk blues 
African music. It was only when um, when I went to a club the first time, I think I experienced it back in New York, like a proper night out and uh, Tenaglia was playing back then. And he wasn't, uh, you know, a big DJ back then. He was just breaking. Uh, there was Junior Vasquez, who was the highlight at the time. And it changed my life uh, completely. I heard this new music that's quite tribally and bass-driven. And it really reached me and it, it changed my life forever. But before that, you had been clubbing. You were kind of fans of trance and different kinds of dance music oh yeah i mean at first i was a trance head when i was here in england in my university years i used to follow people like paul van dyke and <laughs> and all these trance guys because you know that that's what you're subjected to at the beginning and then you start growing up and and you start listening to different things and if you are interested in this kind of music you dig more and, and you, you look into it a bit more. It's an acquired taste, I think, whether you want to learn more about it or not. It's like art, I would say. What was it about the records that Danny was playing, the atmosphere that, that, that grabbed you so strongly? It's just the repetitiveness of, of the beats and the, and the deep bass lines, that whole bottom end that I'm all about was really... Um, sexy to my ears basically so and from then you famously went to lebanon and through kind of some of the first big dance parties in beirut that's right i mean tell me about that experience that was an experience oh my god after the war you know i decided to um to throw parties it was with a partner of mine who knew everybody in in lebanon from sponsors to venue owners and people in that scene so we got in there and obviously me coming from london i knew a lot of djs i knew a lot of people in that scene we joined forces and we decided to throw our first party uh, we chose a location in beirut which was still bombarded after the war you know there was nothing going on rare and it, it was a cathedral and a mosque right next to each other sitting, which shows you that back in the days, there wasn't any problem of that sort. And so we decided to throw the party in front of these two locations. It was a big parking lot, so we dressed it all up. I booked the DJs from uh, London, got some dancers from Paris. We dressed the whole place, put some smoke machines, projectors on the mosque and the, and the cathedral. And we threw that party and we had about a thousand people back then, which was incredible. They've never heard that kind of music before, ever. Uh, it was so funny when the DJs came with their vinyl, people were saying, do people still play vinyl? This is like in the 70s. When that, are you serious? So they were really unaware of that whole culture. And we had Muslims, Christians, Jews, Druze, any background you can think of, they all showed up and we just danced forever under the stars. It was quite euphoric, I have to say. Interestingly, you had strong support from the local, from mm. the government. Mm. They wanted you to 
show that Lebanon was rebuilding itself and that mm. there was a place that we could where you could have a good time after yeah. everything that had happened. Yeah. We went straight in there, you know, I was sitting with the top generals of the city and the top people running the country uh, and they opened their arms and showed us, facilitated everything. I had a, a whole army working as my security back then. So to facilitate, you know, the the traffic, the security for people. They wanted us to um, to rebuild and, and put faith and, and reconstruct this whole bombarded city and, and, and put it back on the map, basically. How long were you throwing parties there for? I did it for about three, four years. And then I had a little issue at one point. The parties, all of them were really successful. And then one day I threw a party during Halloween in Beirut. And uh, all the gays of the city took the opportunity to um, dress up, obviously, with their flamboyant outfits, which was very artistic and, you know, amazing. So during that time, we were governed by the Syrians and we had lots of undercover and and all these radicals uh, lurking around the city which we have nothing to do with. So at that party we had undercover press from all over the Gulf uh, who took pictures of that night and a few months later they published a five-page spread with the cover and the headline on that cover saying Beirut, the perversion city promoting homosexuality and, and perversion or something of that sort as a headline. And you open that magazine and it was my party in there with all these gays on podiums and all these flamboyant people on the podium. So. I got a call one day and uh, they asked me to come down to the station and give a deposition. They used to call it the moral police back then. <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, a Lebanese police. It was Syrians and, and all their ideas. So I got summoned to go down there and give a deposition. It was hell, I have to tell you. You know, I had to call lawyers I had to uh, pull pull out some strings, and I went in there, and they showed me these these pages. Do you know these people? And I said no. I said, did you see them do anything together? I said no. Ask them. Why are you asking me? And one thing led to another. My contacts got me out of there. Four or five hours later, they were planning to keep me in there. It was a Friday afternoon. And they told me the judge is not here, he can't see you, so it's going to have to wait, which meant I would have stayed there till Monday. But obviously I gave them the two fingers and I went out. <laughs> yeah, it seems amazing that throwing parties in that part of the world, um, that you had so much success. I mean, that must have been taking a lot of confidence, a lot of self-belief and, and a kind of lot of passion and spirit for, for the music and for what you were doing to kind of overcome certain social hurdles and... For sure. I had, you know, many, many situations that I had to stand up for myself. 
but it, it gave me a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth because what I'm trying to do obviously didn't translate culturally and artistically to these people. So I decided to, to leave and move to London. In parallel, I had a label running back then here and I thought it was a good time for me to come over here and, um, and give it more attention. One thing led to another. I continued doing what I started over there, and that is a monthly night the, that I had the opportunity to to run at Turn Mills every month for about five and a half years. Well, I imagine that once you've thrown parties in circumstances like you had in, in Beirut, that throwing parties in London are probably a little bit easier. Much easier. <laughs> Much easier. There was a piece of cake, actually. And what kind of artists were you booking? Uh, I booked many, many DJs. I booked about 500 to 600 DJs during that time. I remember um, I gave Paco Osuna his first ever London date back then. Broke a lot of artists as well. People like Chusun Ceballos. You know, that whole Iberican sound was kicking off back then. Obviously Paco and uh, even Adam Bayer, I put him forward back then. So for me, it was a creative process to build the night musically. So um, same as constructing or playing a set. I used to choose who's going to go first, who's doing the mid who's finishing and it worked musically it, it flowed really nicely so for me that part of the business was very exciting how would you describe the london club scene oh, then? oh it was amazing it was kicking i don't know what's going on right now we're kind of like dead compared to the other countries around the world i don't know why but um we need to revive it somehow i don't know and what was it like working in a place like Turnmills? I mean, it's such now it's kind of considered this like really iconic nightclub. Mm. What was it like working within that environment? It was really, really um, a family vibe, actually. I'm very good friends with the owner, Danny Newman. I'm actually the godmother of his son as well. So it was a great family vibe in there. You know, I was going in every month, you know, it's like going into my back room. So it was it was great. As you mentioned that London's club scene has changed a lot. I mean, a lot of clubs from that era have shut down, including Turn Mills. And recently, a lot of other clubs have been shut down, Plastic People, uh, Cable. I mean, do you feel like the attitude towards London clubbing has changed a lot since then? Yeah, it has changed a lot. It reminds me of what happened uh, to New York 10, 15 years ago when Mayor Giuliani came over and cleaned up the whole city and turned it into a family place. And I guess uh, London's undergoing the same thing right now. So maybe in about five years uh, from now, it things would change, I don't know. How long have you lived in London? I've been here probably about 15, 16 years now. What is it about the city that you, you like so much? I like it so much because I've been coming here since I was a kid anyway with my parents. But I like it because you're free to be who you are. You have a freedom of expression. You can, you know, walk naked down the streets, no one cares. You're just a number and I like that. Working all those years at Turn Mills, yeah, like you said, it must have taught you so much about 
about every aspect of the industry really about putting on parties about DJing about even about what records work at certain times you were seeing everything from the first record to the last one that's a kind of a massive knowledge that you've obviously taken with you into becoming an artist but interestingly you weren't at all an artist or a DJ back then no never even thought once to put myself on the decks in front of people obviously we used to do the after parties back at the apartment and bring all the DJs in and obviously I used to play but it just just private stuff I never had thought to put myself out there uh, but obviously my passion for the music was was the number one motivation for me so and all I have to do is just to apply it which which I'm doing now you took a a bit of time out away from the music industry and you had this house in Ibiza. Mm. And it was after that that you kind of decided to come back into the industry and change tack and, and become a performer. I mean, what were the circumstances that led you to kind of make that decision rather than go back to one of your old jobs? Because um, being a promoter is very stressful. It's got a lot of financial implications so it's a bit of like gambling one day you win one day you lose you need a lot of nerves to to succeed and you don't always succeed because it's you don't have a successful party every time it doesn't happen this way and stepping out from that for about two and a half years and i got immersed into that reefer project uh, in ibiza it helped me have a different perception, actually, about the scene. Mind you, while I was scrubbing grouts and shining my <laughs> my windows, I had music blaring all the time and uh, listening to everything. So I decided to just make that music that made me feel so incredible and just wanted to do that. I went into a studio, I didn't think... It was going to get me anywhere. I had no expectations. I just wanted to make the music. And then one day things changed for me. How far does your relationship with Ibiza go back? Oh, it, it goes way back since 2000. You were there as a clubber? Yeah, I was there as a clubber for sure. And I felt a certain energy over there and obviously I come from the Mediterranean and uh, being in Ibiza it's it's the med and I felt a connection immediately with it so you decide to start making music I mean that that was the decision rather than be a DJ or performer you wanted to make the music yeah what was the process you just you got in the studio you made some tracks and then you kind of just I imagine you had a wealth of contacts and relationships within the industry that of course must have been a great yeah. help I just went in and first, you know, if, you, if, if I listen to my earlier productions, they were very deep and minimal. And um, the more I did it, the more I, I found my groove and my sound and pushed it as I was going along. It's a learning process and I'm still learning. And I like everything, you know, I like chill out and I like hard, nasty techno as well, so. When you started making music, did you already were you already settled on that techno sound? No, I was I was a bit on the slower tip, and then <laughs> as I moved along, I started going harder and tougher. 
That's interesting. I mean, why, why do you think that is? Because my ears were stamped with that sound as well from my clubbing years. And I wanted to, um, to translate what I heard and what, what I like and, you know, what also moves me on, on a big floor. You use Ableton to make music and you DJ with Tractor. You're a big fan. Technology has been a big part of kind of who you are. I mean, what is it that you like about working with computers? You know, it's the future. There's a difference between driving a, a car, like, like a shift car. Is it shift or stick? Uh, gears. Gears. So, yeah. so there's a difference driving this or a supercar. So the music and, and the scene has evolved and what you can do with technology these days. Your sound is bigger. Your sound is more unique. It gives you the chance to... Um, do live remixes on the fly. And the whole point is for you not to sound like everybody else. And it's very creative in that sense of what you can do with it once you learn the tools and take it and make it your own, basically. And I really enjoy that. I mean, I play on four decks simultaneously throughout. And people ask me, what, what's the name of this track? What's the name of that track? It doesn't have a name because it's like a mixture of things that I just did. And I will probably never repeat it again because it comes by improvisation there and then. So technology definitely helps you to do that. I don't think I see myself playing one record in and another record out anymore. I can't do it. It just doesn't work. Did you start like that? Of course. Oh yeah, of course. I have an amazing vinyl collection, which I need to pull out of my storage. <laughs> I've got all the strictly rhythm US classic house records from the beginning till the end. I mean, I was a collector. Yeah, that's what everybody played. And then I played on CDs. I remember my first gigs at Space were CDs. But then, you know, since 2010, five years ago, I made the shift. You were just after more possibilities. More possibilities. More you know, I used to hear these DJs and, and they sounded different. And I was like, why do they sound so big? And then, you know, I realized it's because they're doing all these things. I got coached and I did lessons and I had the best coaches to teach me how to use these tools. And now um, it's down to me to, to take it further. Are you someone who brings new equipment into your setup regularly? I do, and now I'm I'm actually planning to do that in April. I'm gonna be set myself in Los Angeles for a whole month and do some more tech training over there, and see where it's gonna take me. You mentioned space there, and your your relationship with the club, and of course, Carl Cox's night on Tuesdays there is, is is very well known. How did your relationship with with Carl start? He was the first one to pick my music before anyone else and uh, one day I realized that he was playing my music on his radio shows and then uh, next thing I hear that he name checked me for the top 100 DJs which I wasn't aware of I only found out three weeks after that and then um, all the records that I was producing he was playing them immediately uh, which means that he was into them and he liked them you know, DJs are not obliged to play anybody's music unless they really like them. So after that, he started inviting me to 
to his nights. The first night I did was here in London at a small club. It was the launch of his DVD. And he asked me to warm up for him that year. And uh, <laughs> I was scared. I was so bloody scared because I've, I've never done this before, especially with someone like Gar Cox. And uh, since that moment, I haven't stopped playing with him. And uh, we produce music together. We, um, we do back-to-backs in Miami and in Ibiza. And we're great friends as well. Really tight. It seems like things move very fast. You, you put out your first record in 2008. In 2009, Coxie's already talking about you. Yeah. You're already playing space. I mean, you're a fast learner. How did, it, how did you manage to pull it together so quickly? It's impressive. Thank you. I don't know. It's probably my personality as well. You know, I, I push and I'm, um, I just dive and, you know, but I don't dive if I'm not 100% sure of myself. So it takes a lot of hard work. Don't think it happens so easily. You know, it, it, it's hard work. People see the end result, but there's a lot that goes in the behind the scene to get there. I suppose it's having had such a such a wealth of experience behind you. You kind of you were sure of who you were and what you liked, and a lot of I imagine a lot of up and coming producers still don't really know the world they're getting into and are unsure of of what direction they want to go. Whereas you you knew exactly what you were going for. I think because of the ten years of me being a professional clubber and doing nothing, just getting fucked up and going clubbing, helped me a lot. I have to say. <laughs> It was my education. These up-and-coming producers need to do the same. They need to go out and listen to a lot of music and just live it and breathe it. And, you know, if that's what they want to do, then that's the only thing they need to do. Nothing else, because it is a 24-hour job if, if you really want to succeed and, and follow your passion. It doesn't happen, you know, overnight. It, it takes years. And for me, if you say that it, it has been a quick rise, it hasn't because I've been doing this, listening to music and learning for many years before. It's not just a case of playing out there. It's, it's the knowledge. Knowledge is the power here. And you need to learn, learn the music, learn everything about it. Someone like Carl Cox, I mean, what does he represent to, or what did he represent to you as a kind of young and, and coming up producer? I mean, Carl Cox has 30 years experience behind him. And whatever he says goes. It's just the work that he's put in behind that uh, commands a lot of respect. It's as simple as that. And uh, he is the, the, the biggest DJ in the world in the scene that we are in. And he's someone who has done it with a smile on his face at all times. Mm. It's very, his, his love for music is very pure. Mm. It's very uncomplicated. Mm. I find that, I mean, personally, I find that quite... He like, taught me a lot with uh, being humble. And you should never forget where you came from. And these are words I abide with since childhood. I was brought up this way. And to apply it in the work that you do definitely is a plus because uh, you see a lot of DJs out there that made one hit or two hit records and they think that they are it 
And that attitude will never get you anywhere in any business, I would have thought. You seem very driven. Are you, um, do you aspire to reach the heights that Carl Cox has? <laughs> Without a doubt. I'm very ambitious. I've always been ambitious, yeah. You would like to just get as, as high as you can? As high as I can, and there are no limits. Amazing. I mean, would you ever consider your own residency in Ibiza? Yes. I mean, that is another co massive commitment, but why not? Yeah. I wouldn't say no to that. It's, it's my home. Space is, I mean, there are only rumours at the moment, but the lease is up at the end of next year. I mean, how do you feel about the potential end of one of the kind of... Sad. I feel very sad. And I hope they're not going to turn it into that cheesy EDM because it looks like Ibiza is turning a little bit that way, which is very sad. And I hope, um, I hope we're not going to lose the essence and the charm that everybody knows that Ibiza is all about. And this is why they love Ibiza, is because of that. And to lose it will be a very sad day. Does it feel like a very different place from when you used to go? I noticed it this year, yeah. I mean, if I, when I was walking down the Playa de Mbossa a little bit, where Space and Ushuaia are right next to each other, and you see these kids, you know that they know nothing of what is going on. It's just what they've been fed immediately from press or visuals. or It reminded me of those cheesy Ayanapa package deals that that Ibiza is not about that at all. It's not. I suppose it's always had that side, but maybe it's coming more to the fore. Not in that commercial bubblegum way. It's, it was never that. No, I have to say it was never that. And Carl Cox isn't the only mentor you've had. You've, you've worked closely with Adam Bayer, Diane Tanaglia, Victor Calderon. Having had such close relationships with such strong kind of artists in the scene, is it important for you to then passed down onto the next generation oh yeah of course and I, and I do that a lot I've got my little children behind me <laughs> which I help a lot these kids are so talented and I do everything to help them and push them as much as I can obviously of course who are some of the artists that you're most excited about Marino Canal is a great producer and a DJ Wade as well from Spain a new um, UK guy called Poza. So there are there are a few out there that need to be um, heard. Trent Cantrell as well from from LA is amazing. So you know, my label is also a platform to 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 share these amazing music, whether it's established or not. When it's good, it needs to be heard. It's as simple as that. Did you set, you set up the label just for that purpose, to yeah. kind of get music out there? And yeah, for the stuff that uh, the drum code or the Intech or uh, people like that won't sign, so I would put it out on my label because I'm not just one sound, really. Um, I'm chill out to hard techno and everything in between. I love music, all kinds of music, so yeah, I'm not pigeonholed in one sound and I don't wish to be. Do you ever feel that you are? At some point, I was. Uh, mind you, doing the radio show that I have, which is now in 61 FM stations worldwide, 
it allowed me to uh, explore and dig more and uh, and it's catching up people are realizing that I'm not just one sound and that actually was an amazing platform to showcase my knowledge and my love for music you have the radio station you have your parties you have the label you have your normal tour schedule it's a lot to manage i mean how do you how do you cope with just all the different moving I don't. parts and <laughs> I think I had a nervous breakdown this summer. <laughs> I don't cope because I'm a perfectionist and I like everything to be perfect. And obviously nothing is perfect. So I get frustrated. I just need to uh, do some meditation. I think maybe that will help. <laughs> you have a very strong following in the US and you play a lot of these big festivals. You've been openly critical about EDM and that kind of side of things before. Mm. But you must be grateful for the doors that, that it's opened over there. The EDM, for me, it's like Christmas carol melodies. I think because in the States, the 18-year-olds can't go to clubs, unfortunately, unlike in Europe. So we're going to have to wait for them to, to be 21, for them to start doing the shift. Because uh, EDM, I mean, it's definitely not house and it's not techno. It's pop. It's pop dance uh, and uh, stuff you listen at the radio and in bars and beaches all over the States. But uh, I see the shift is happening. Uh, like from two, three years ago, people are catching up and they're going into clubs and they're discovering a whole new world. It's a little bit like me when I was like following the trance and then I discovered something else. It's just a process and, and the phase that when people grow up, they, they go through, basically. It definitely does feel like an important step to bring a whole generation of people in that, that otherwise would have been listening to rock or hip-hop or other things. Yeah. Again, it depends. If you want to dig and learn more about this scene, you would. And it's a matter of taste and you can't argue with taste and you can't push people to to like something if they don't maybe if they uh, see their parents loving house and techno they want to step out and do something totally different i don't know i have like the 18 year olds following me now and thinking this is a whole new world and it's uh, it's cute it's amusing <laughs> I mean, you tour relentlessly, you have this successful radio show, The Label. Is it important for you to try and reach as many people with your music as possible? Very much so. And this is um, why I did The Breed with Skin. I wanted it to be a bit of a crossover material without losing the cred. So that it reaches, you know, the, the novice, let's say, in that world and maybe capture capture them into into what we are doing. And in fact, you know, if, if people like me, I would like to work on those people who like me to actually love me. And you need to bet on, on your fans and, and keep them and give them what they want, basically. You obviously are a woman in the scene. And I don't want to dwell too much on that because a lot have said about it, but there was an interesting blog, I don't know if you saw it, um, that popped up last year called Very Male Lineups. And it's just um, a blog that kind of highlighted festival lineups or, or big parties and everyone on there was a man. And it kind of, some of it was quite striking. You know, there's, there's so many amazing female artists in the world at the moment, probably more than there's ever been. As someone who's been a promoter, do you feel that people have a responsibility to balance things out a little bit? 
I've been asked this question a lot, and I have to say that you don't see this in Hollywood, you don't see this in the urban world or the pop world. Why do we have this in dance music? I don't understand the segregation between man and woman. What's that about? I don't understand it. What comes out of the speaker, does it have a gender? I mean, why do we make it such a big deal? At the end of the day, it's a choice. You know, if girls want to get out on the road and have this lifestyle, they can. And maybe this is why they, they don't do it that much, because it's not an easy job for anyone, really. You don't see this divide in, um, in the urban world, for example. We, we never talk about that. So why, why do we make it such a big deal in dance music? I don't... Can you help me find out? Because I'm still trying to find out. I suppose dance music is, is kind of built on very egalitarian principles of... of exactly. So it defies the notion of what we do. No, absolutely. And, but I think that's why people are interested in it, because it's not inherently... I mean, there are certain hip-hop, certain misogynistic kind of um, ideas that run through it and have always run through it. It's very male-dominated, whereas dance music necessarily shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. It's all about love and equal behavior and respect and uh, tolerance. And, you know, when you're on the floor for nine hours, you make friends, you have moments, you talk and you love each other. So what's that about? I don't understand it. it we need to break it. So do you agree that, that certain promoters should be considering that actually... I could be bringing in a woman who is just as good or better than this guy and kind of just like sending a message out. I mean, if it was a case of, oh, there aren't many good female DJs, you don't want to have them in there just for their women, but they, they're, such, they're, exactly. they're just as good or better. Than you most. just have to be good enough. Yeah. You just have to be good enough. And, uh, you know, I, when I was a promoter, I, I didn't book certain male DJs because they weren't good enough. So it's just a case of, who you are and what you do. And it should be that way only. <laughs> 